0: Hey, what's up? I'm Brandon, the worship director at Sanctus Church, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. Our vision here at Sanctus is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. We're so glad you've joined us this week. Let's begin. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're again joining us, or maybe it's your first time, you're most welcome also. We're now basically in the middle of Romans. And so before I get going today out of Romans 9, if you've got a Bible, love you. If you've got a physical one or one on a tablet or a phone, love you to turn to Romans 9. But before you do that, just listen to this uh, sort of idea. We had a pretty large snowstorm within the last week. And I was driving to our Ajax location, actually where I'm filming right now. And as I was driving, just after the snowstorm, everything was sort of basically cleared away. The 401, by the way, if you're from another part of the world, the 401s are sort of major sort of highway in Toronto. I was driving the 401 and came off the exit to get to this location. And though all the roads had been cleared away and the sun was now out again, and it was basically minus three, not minus nine or 12, uh, as I was coming down the ramp, I looked up and in front of me was the light, the traffic light. And because the wind had been so strong and the snow had been so strong, it actually caked on the whole face of the traffic light. And this is at a major intersection that I was thinking, I don't know if this is red or green or yellow. I can't see what's right, what's wrong, where to caution, like what do I do? So as I was starting to slow down and trying to evaluate so there wasn't an accident, suddenly the red light came on and it sort of bled through, just a little bit, through that caked-on snow. I remember literally coming to a stop and looking at that and almost having this sense, that's the image. I mean, that's the image. All of us, (laughs) whether you're a long-term Christian, a brand-new Christian, you're not a Christian, you're skeptic, uh, you, you are spiritual, you're seeking, you're not. We live in this moment in our culture. We are literally inundated, overwhelmed with a million voices and a million ideas. Things are literally like caked onto us, into our mind and our thinking on our social media feeds to the point where we don't even know when we're supposed to stop, when we're supposed to go, where there's caution and where there's not caution. And so this is why the book of Romans is so unbelievably helpful to us who are following Jesus and also for you who are wondering and checking out Jesus. Because literally the book of Romans is scraping away, ripping away, removing all of this taking on of so many ideas where we can't see, and it's allowing us to see Clearly, again, remember we started this series, it was about a resurrection of the Christian worldview so we could either discover Jesus properly or keep walking with him in a culture that is walking away. So last week, if you were with us, we ended in an amazing place. The all-powerful truth, the all-consuming statement, nothing can separate us, nothing can separate me from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Of course, if you're a Christian. And we'd almost think, well, the theological sort of thinking and part of Romans has to be over, but it's not, actually, it's sort of revving up. Chapter nine is all about God's glory, our salvation. And he's gonna go back to that very uncomfortable conversation again, that word, that idea, that thought called election. Now this passage, I'm gonna admit right up front, is one of the hardest passages in the whole Bible to read, understand, and preach. So you can pray for me if you're watching. But this is also why our very first core value as a church is so critically needed. Scripture, God's word, is the ultimate source for faith, life, and practice. It forms us. We don't form it. Chapter 9 is about God's sovereignty, his kingship. Chapter 10 is about the justice of God. Chapter 11 is this incredible, comforting passage where we root our comfort in God's faithfulness. But notice, 9, 10, 11, God is at the center of each one of those conversations, not us. Now Paul, in these next three chapters, is starting to wrestle in a really personal, really painful, really new way. He's broken, like this is legit brokenness. He's pained, he's upset, he's struggling, he's not confused, but he's just frustrated about his own family, his own friends his own ethnic group. Remember, Paul's Jewish. Like, he's as Jewish as it gets. And of course, the Jews are the people of God. And here's what he's wrestling with. Why in the world are not so many more Jews, the Jewish people, coming to Jesus? Who's the Messiah? Who's fulfilling everything they've been waiting for? And while they're not coming, so many non-Jewish people are coming and meeting Jesus as the Son of God. And he's like, what do I do with this? This is causing like big pain, deep aches. And this isn't just sort of emotion for the moment or trying to get attention. This isn't drama. This is deep anguish. Remember, Paul's Jewish. He's a Jew among Jews. He never lost his love for his history. He never rejected his identity. He never rejected his ethnic roots, his religious roots, his cultural roots, or his love for his fellow Jews. This whole passage is about his personal struggle, but his personal struggle helps us in our personal struggles too. Romans 9.1, hear God's word. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He starts by saying, look, what i am about to talk about? I'm not lying. I'm speaking in the name of the one who has authority over heaven and earth. I have a good conscience. I'm actually under the influence, under the power of the Holy Spirit, who by the way, authored all of the Old Testament, and authored and helped the prophets speak God's word. Remember, at this moment, and you might not know this, many, many Jews, both those who claimed Jesus was the Messiah, and many who said he was not the Messiah, both of those group of Jews were suspicious of Paul, uh, were uh, against his theology, doubted his loyalty, doubted his patriotism, because he kept bringing so many non-Jews into the Jewish community. Others viewed him as traitor, heretic, apostate. Many people actually said he was almost sort of committing a spiritual genocide through false faith. The more you actually bring in all these non-Jews into your version of Judaism, you're going to actually destroy us from the inside out. Paul says, I have great sorrow, verse 2, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, uh, for I could wish that I myself was cursed and cut off from Christ, for the sake of my family, my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, he hurt so much at this, and he had such hopes for the people of God that actually he was deeply struggling. He's like, Jesus is the Messiah. The whole Testament's about him. And so he actually cries out this crazy thing. He says, God, send me to hell. You let all my family in And you help them understand what salvation really is. I need to be cursed and I need to be cut off. I need to be excommunicated. Basically says, God, you damn me, not them. Now, of course, he knew that was impossible. But this isn't just rhetoric. It's not a game. Again, not drama or dramatics. Paul's huge love for his fellow Jews caused him to carry the burden for the Jewish race, those he knew and those who he didn't know. And this was genuine and intense, and it's emotional, and it's rooted in holy history. There's this amazing moment where Moses, in the Old Testament, was standing between God's perfection, God himself, and actually the people who had sinned again. And Moses says, you damn me, don't damn them. Why all this intensity? Well, because of the amazing history of what God had done in the Jewish community. I mean, Paul lists it, verse 4, theirs, the Jewish community is the adoption to sonship. There is his divine glory. There's the covenants. There is the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human history of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He said, listen, like, just read Jewish history. Know your, your history, your theology. I mean, the Jews were adopted out of all the nations of the earth. God at the Exodus says, you're my kids. You're my family. They had divine glory. In the Old Testament, God's literal physical presence was found among them. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, in the tabernacle and the temple under Moses and Solomon, the literal presence of God shows up. It didn't happen in any other race, just them. They were given covenants, agreements. Abraham had one, Moses had one, King David had one. They were given the Ten Commandments. They were given God's actual revelation. They were given temple worship. God had established a unique means for sinful, broken, messed up men and women and children to actually approach God, know God, and even worship Him. And they were given the promises. They were told that through their ethnicity, through their people group, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come from them. But this is where things get difficult. One wrote this, this quick inventory of Israel's blessing and privilege underscores their lack of excuse for failing to believe in Jesus. The unbelieving majority ignored the mountain of evidence before them and chose not to trust in God, proving that actually their unbelief was a moral issue, not just intellectual. Ironically, lean in, this is important. Ironically, they turned their unique relationship with God into an idol, again making the mistake that the gift was more important than the giver. And they started believing that their heritage would save them, apart from faith. If you just put that verse up again, let me, (laughs) I I don't know if you caught it. But it's pretty amazing where he says, out of all the blessings given to the Jewish community, he says, the Messiah, who is God over all. Uh, Oh, that's unbelievably blasphemous and wrong, unless it's true. Paul explicitly says here that Jesus, born of Mary, stepdad Joseph, carpenter, is the one true living God. Yes, he's got genuine human ancestry, and he's God, the Word made flesh. Now, Paul is a master teacher, and he begins to address the questions that he knows are already in the heads and hearts of people hearing Romans for the first time, but especially his own family. People would say this, okay, Paul, okay, hold on. If we as Jewish people have all these incredible rights and privileges, if we are so great, then God actually is a liar. He's failed us. God's not even kept his word to us. If God has gone back on his word to Israel, then as one person pointed out, a deep chasm begins to form between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the good news can no longer claim that the God of Israel is the author, and the whole plan of salvation crashes. And Paul responds and roots his answer in that really difficult word. Election. Calling, foreknowledge, predestination. He expands on what we talked about last week. So verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who descend from Israel are Israel. Excuse me? Let me say it again. For not all who descend from Israel are Israel. So Paul says, yes. And he's saying, I'm a Jew. All Jews are Jews because of natural descent. This is our ethnic group. We're ethnically Jewish, correct? But there are actually two Israels, not one. One is physical Israel, and one is spiritual Israel. All Jewish people belong to ethnic Israel. That totally makes sense. But those Jews who are called by God, who believe in Jesus the Messiah, are the true spiritual Israel, because they've been included in the Messiah in Christ. In other words, the people of God, Israel, by, by the time Jesus has done his work on earth is now the church. See, here's the wild thing. The people of God, the church, or the new Israel, or Israel, has its foundation in Jesus, and then every single Jew on earth who believes in Jesus, a Messianic Jew, and then all these non-Jews also believe in the same Jesus, and we all experience the true living God. That's spiritual Israel. Now, Paul then turns to his own history, to the founder of the Jewish people, Abraham. And he says, listen, Jews belong to Abraham in different ways. Verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be redeemed. Okay, so Paul uses the story from the Old Testament of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And he uses this to prove his point. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. As one points out, inheriting the promise is not based on birth alone. It depends on God's gracious intervention. And by the way, if you read Abraham's story, he didn't just have two boys, he had six beyond these two. So to be direct, God decides it's going to be this way. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Paul keeps going. In other words... It is not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. This is what God actually said in the Old Testament. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, Paul knows exactly what's happening. Many people are going to go, especially Jewish people. Paul, of course, Isaac was chosen because Abraham and Sarah came together and they had Isaac. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were told they were going to have a baby in their old age. They didn't believe God. They didn't wait for God's timing. So Sarah said, Here, here's, my, here's my maidservant, Hagar. You, Abraham, you go sleep with her. And then that's how this is going to work out. And out of that union, this son named Ishmael shows up. And so Jews would say, of course, God is going to choose Isaac because that's the way it was supposed to happen, not through Ishmael the way it wasn't supposed to happen. And Paul goes, "Um, no, that's not true. Just look at Isaac's kids. Look at the next generation. See, Isaac grows up and Isaac gets married to Rebekah and and they come together and they've got kids and actually, widely, they have two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Sons born of one mom in the same womb by one act of conception. Paul says, not only that, I know some of you are getting like, this is so historically boring. No, hold on, it matters. Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by, who, by, by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob was called. Esau was not. Jacob was elected. Esau was not. Jacob chosen for one before either twin had been born. See, it's not about good works. It's not about birth order. It's not about heritage. It's not about, but I come from the right religious family. It's God making the call. God actually, in this case, wildly reverses the birth order, which in this culture was like unbelievably scandalous. Okay, don't go off the deep end. Don't misunderstand the point. God is not saying... I, ch- I saved Jacob, and I'm damning Esau. Remember what we learned last week. Oh, and remember what we learned in Romans 5. All of us, humans, had free choice to know God and walk with him in Adam, and we chose to walk away in Adam. There's a very old famous preacher named Donald Barnhouse who wrote it like this. Some hold that the choice of Jacob implies God damned Esau. Both of these brothers were born in sin. They're humans. Both of them had the nature of Adam. They both grew up in sin, read their stories. They're both children of wrath, both disobedient by nature. If there had been, listen, any merit in these two sons, God would have God been unjust by not rewarding that merit. The choice of one deserving, one, the of one deserving man over another deserving man would have been favoritism. But when you begin to see, this is important, these two equally, and they were equally undeserving, the whole picture changes. Everything that's said in the entire Bible about human beings that are fallen must be said, has to be said about Jacob and Esau. God determined for causes that are found within himself and not revealed to us that he showed favor to Jacob. Oh, and then Paul does it. Paul quotes out of the, out of the prophet Malachi. Uh, Hold on, everyone. Like, just as it is written, God says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Oh, I mean, (laughs) hold on. That is a huge word. I mean, are you getting uncomfortable? And remember, God just said this. Not Paul, not God. God. And notice, notice the language. This gets back to last week. It's not predictive, I know Jacob's going to choose me, so I chose him. It's action. I choose Jacob. I don't choose Esau. Now, this is a reference from Malachi chapter 1. The original verse, by the way, is referring to the nations that come from, the, uh, from these brothers. Uh, Jacob produces the Jews, and, and Esau produces the Edomites. But Paul is using it individually. Now, the idea of love and hate, we've got to do some history to get this. Love and hate were also interchangeably used with choice or passing over. Jesus uses this exact same idea when he's talking in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his dad, or hate his mom, or hate his wife, or hate his children, or hate his brothers or his sisters, yes, even hate their own life, that person cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is not saying is, To become a follower of Jesus, a Christian, I literally have to hate my father, James Douglas Thompson. I hate you. Now I can accept Jesus. No, no, no. What Jesus is saying here is, this is a matter of ultimate priority. We have to love Jesus as ultimate over everything else, including those we value the most. Here's the point Paul is making. God has not failed Israel because Israel has failed its assignment. True Israel true believers have always come to God through his sovereign choice. As one wrote, Paul uses the Old Testament story of God's sovereign selection of Isaac and Jacob to establish a basic principle about the way God selects people. The language Paul uses in the context of the verses makes it clear he applies the principle to God's election of individuals to salvation. Now, I'm sure at this moment, there's a lot of you really struggling. I mean, this, this feels unjust. I don't like this. I'm a democratic person. I believe I get a vote. I get a right. What about me? What? A, what a rugged individualism, majority rules, pragmatic moralism, my story, my rights, my specialness. My... But again, what's happening in this passage is the snow is getting scraped off. And we're being humbled. I remind you, We're talking about God, not a human. God, not some invented God like Zeus or Thor. God, not some alien visiting God. Now, Paul right here deals with the next major question. Well, if what you just said is true, honestly, John, God's unfair. He's not only unfair, he's a monster. I don't want to follow him or know him. It's obvious, right? He's unjust. What he says about himself and how he acts, man, I don't even know if I can trust him. What shall we say then? Verse 14, is God unjust? Not at all. One person penned it like this. If we cry out, God is unfair because he elects some, we have a faulty view of God. God is not some enlarged man with human emotion, will and emotions. He's not finite. Let me put it like this. God is perfect in knowledge. He's got perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect perfect presence. He's perfect in his faithfulness. He's perfect in his goodness. He's perfect in his justice. He's perfect in his mercy. He's present. He's unchanging. He's eternal. He's, abo- he's above the bounds of time and space. He's self-existent. He's holy. He's holy above creation. He's holy without sin. And he's always right and he's always just. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. He makes perfect choices. God is not responsible to anyone. He is an absolute sovereign. He is an, he's no prime minister. He's no MP you get to vote out. He's king. Now, this should scare us to death. This should, like, we should want to revolt if God is this and is not perfect. But see, here's the difference. God is perfect. We all know this. Absolute kings on earth or dictators or leaders end up always using their power in small or large ways, in wrong ways, because power corrupts, absolutely. But see, that doesn't happen with God because God is perfect, holy in love. It was A.W. Tozer, the great, actually famous Canadian pastor who preached the next words just in downtown Toronto a few generations ago. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so unnoble as to be utterly unworthy of any type of thinking worship. Paul says, verse 15, what did God say to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Oh, uh, human desire or effort. It's only God's mercy. This quote, by the way, comes from the time where Moses was again standing between the majesty and holiness of God and the broken people of Israel. They had just built the golden calf and went, Moses is up trying to get the Ten Commandments and God's literal presence is on and they are building a golden calf and celebrating some wicked God from Egypt and he literally has mercy on his people. Now Paul, working this out, then stays in Moses' story but he goes back to the time of Pharaoh and the battle between Moses and Pharaoh. And, and I was reminded this week when I was reading others of this, and I don't know if you've thought about this. Remember, Moses grew up in Egyptian life, actually in Pharaoh's household. So as one said, both Moses and Pharaoh were raised by the king of Egypt, in the house of the king. Both received an education in the best schools and the pagan schools of Egyptian priests. Both enjoyed a standard of living, uber rich, far exceeding the mud pit existence of fellow slaves. Both had royal privilege, but their paths only diverged when God interfered in one of their lives. For as Scripture said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. Now the word hard means to become stubborn or obstinate. It comes from the medical idea when your arteries like in your heart get hardened and then of course you have heart attack and you die. Now Paul here doesn't remind us that Pharaoh started the hardening process himself. If you read Exodus 14 through 4 through 14, God gives Pharaoh multiple times to repent and he and he does not. So when you read that God hardens someone's heart, here's the image. God takes his protective hands off a human heart and says, I'm just going to let you become what you want to become. And since you're in sin, you will always become against me. One person really beautifully and poetically once wrote, sunlight melts melts ice, but hardens clay. Well, then a third huge question comes up. Okay, Paul, you say that Pharaoh was used to work at God's plan. So how can you hold Pharaoh accountable for his actions? I mean, God's so unfair. And by the way, how could God hold me or any of us accountable for our actions if he determines what happens, who's saved and who's not? One of you will say to me, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist God's will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He says, uh, first of all, we're dust, right? We're just human But as we've learned already, if you've read all of Romans with us, everyone already had the choice back in Adam. And we said no to God. And not only that, we continue to agree with Adam's rebellion because we, in our thoughts and words and actions, continue every single day to break the Ten Commandments. Another person pretty powerfully wrote this. We lost our right to complain about poor treatment when we chose to rebel. Therefore, anything we receive other than immediate death is mercy. This is so, so wild that I'm about to read. People in need of mercy don't have rights. People in need of mercy don't have rights. That's why Paul chooses the image of the potter from Jeremiah and Isaiah and the wisdom of Solomon. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like that? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, who has also called, not only from Jews but also from non-Jews, now, oh, oh boy. Number one, he's just reminding us, you're not all that plus a bag of chips. You're not even on the table. We're humans and we're special, but he's the potter and we're the clay. And see that phrase prepared for destruction. It's written, by the way, uh, in what linguistics linguists call middle voice, and so it reads like this: prepared by themselves for destruction. Again, this goes back to the idea. In Adam, we had choice. We lost choice, and God, just like Pharaoh, took his hands off the human race and said, "You want to go that way? Fine. I'm going to take my hands off, and this harding's going to happen. This rebellion's going to happen, and so we have chosen this destruction." One person said, rather than complaining that some will not be saved, we should see the glass more than half full and thank God that anyone will be saved. Now all of this, Israel's failure on mass and the calling of non-Jews was predicted in the Old Testament, Hosea and Isaiah. Uh, as it says, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who's not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out a sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. The failure of much, not all of Israel, and the inclusion of non-Jews has been God's plan all along. God is just, God is good, God has not failed. He's not in trouble anyway. And then it's almost like God says to us, and what should we conclude from all of this? Well, just so you know, it's always about faith. What shall we say? Verse 30, that the non-Jews who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued it by obeying the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? because the Jewish community pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, see, God says, I lay in Zion among the Jewish community a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. See, Paul says this has always been out faith for Jews and non-Jews. God calls us and we put our trust in his work, Jesus' work alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus alone, not by works, not by secular humanism, not by education, not by, not, it's just Mercy. Mercy, mercy. N.T. Wright brilliantly said, what counts is grace, not race. Hello, let me say it again. What counts is grace, not race. Now I know there's a lot to this and there's going to take some time to digest it in connect groups and beyond. But out of all this, no matter where you land with a lot of it, there are two incredible, valuable, you could call them like diamonds, That are given to us freely, truth and freedom. At the heart of our movement as Christians, it's relational, which produces holy living and loving living. The danger is that if we don't have a right picture of God, we even as Christians begin to invent a God to be something he's not, which of course ends up being this thing called an idol. Truth, the scraping off the snow to see what really is happening, brings life in a relationship. Romans 9 is such a gift because it balances out what so many of us as Christians love about our faith. What do you love about our faith? Through Jesus, God is my friend. I know I'm loved. I can never be separated from him. I have intimacy with God. I'm never going to be alone. I have a personal relationship with God. I'm free. All of those things are true, but God isn't just your best friend. He's also transcendent. He's the great I am. We actually need to fight the loss of awe in some of our churches, which is actually connected to a loss of patience, reflection, and silence. There's this amazing book written probably 20 years ago now called The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a a Manageable Deity, where he basically says, when we as Christians reduce God to my comfort, my success, or my political bent, everything goes out the window. The problem arises, he says, when we forget the vast difference between our view of God and the reality of God. Let me say it again. The problem arises when we forget the vast difference between our view of God and the reality of God. When we equate the picture in the lens, when we equate the picture in the lens with the whole divine truth, things get clear any God I support, any God that supports my latest cause, fits comfortably with my understanding and my experience alone, will be a God no, longer, no larger than me, no larger than I, and will not be able to save me from my sin, or inspire me to worship, or empower my service. Any God who fits the contours of me will never transcend me, and never actually is God. Any God who doesn't actually kick out the bars of the prison of my perceptions will be nothing but a trivial God. See, Romans 9 is a gift. Here's why. Because it reminds us, I'm just dust. I'm here and I'm gone. I'm created. He's creator. I'm dust. He's not dust. He's never sinful. I mess up all the time. He's the author of history and even the author of my life. I'm not the author of history, and I'm not truly the author of my life. And when one person chooses to embrace this because we know that God is good, and he's holy, and he's trustworthy, when we actually get that truth, and the snow is scraped off, then this is what we really get. Everyone ready? Freedom. Freedom. Augustine said it best, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. The idea, this idea of being chosen, brings freedom in three ways. Number one, it gives you freedom from religion and self-sufficiency. Remember, what every single religion on earth teaches, I get saved, I'm made right with God or spiritual things because of what I do. I pray five times a day, I, I go to this place to pray, I give to the poor, I study a holy scripture, I did not fill in the blank. I am saved by what I do. I get God's attention by what I do. I get God's attention because I'm from this family. I get God's attention because of all this activity I do. Or the reverse, I don't need God because I'm self-sufficient. Look at my education, my ethnicity, my rights. But see, religion and secular humanism always end up having us in the middle, which is always a mistake, and it always ends up with broken dreams, lost relationships, divine disappointment, and confusion. The good news is this is not what God is offering us. What did Paul say? It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's, one word, mercy. He and his community around the world, and expressed here at Sanctus, were not about fear here. We're not about perfectionism here. We're not about self-reliance here. We're not about true religiosity here. We don't have time for true, empty religion. I can't draw God down. He chooses to have mercy, and his mercy gives me life. That frees me from the burden of being God. And that freedom leads to a freedom Oh man, our culture so wants, and I want, and you want, and yet we don't want it. It's called rest. See, here's the powerful thing about this. When you step out and tell your neighbor or friend about Jesus, or you pray, or you love the poor in Jesus' name, or you're helping a brand new Christian in their walk, or you're serving in in a kid's ministry, or you're teaching the scriptures, the burden of results gets removed. We're free in the power of the Holy Spirit to do God's will, but the results are his, not ours. Yeah, our vision to reach 10,000. Amazing, wild. We just have to be faithful. God's got to do his job. So you got freedom from religion. Then you got freedom to rest because it's actually not on you. And then this allows the thing that's really missing in a lot of churches, including ours. It then gives you personally and us corporately freedom to step out in power. See, so many of us are afraid to do things for God, do things in Jesus' name because fear is stronger than faith because our faith is not rooted in sovereignty. It's rooted in my ability. Let me just put it like this. I'm just the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And when you suddenly understand the sovereignty of God and it's up to him, everything changes. One old pastor was sharing once about a conversation he had when he was younger. And a friend of his turned to him, and he was a pastor at this point, and he says, why are you so afraid of the doctrine, the idea of God's real sovereignty? This old pastor, young at that point, blinked. He said he looked out the window, he looked down at his feet, he looked back into his friend's eyes and said, I'm afraid that if I believe that, I'll lose my zeal to tell people about Jesus. I'm afraid that if I really believe that God does all this, I'm just going to become a passive pastor. I'm afraid I'm going to leave everything to God, and he's going to elect who's going to elect, and I will do nothing. And Ray said, oh, no, 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 you've got to remember something. Remember this guy named Spurgeon in London? the most famous Baptist preacher who was in London during the Victorian times, this is what he once said. If God had painted a stripe down the back of every person he had elected, I would spend my days walking up and down the streets of London lifting up shirt tails to find the stripe. But because God has said, whoever wills may come, I preach the gospel to everyone and I rely on him to lead those to faith who are his. He writes, this is great help. The longer, hear this as we come to an end, the longer I serve God in ministry, the more comfort I find in the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing. Rather than making me passive, actually it's given me confidence in God's control. It's freed me to proclaim the good news of Jesus with more power and greater freedom. I'm less burdened with whether I am successful because my responsibility is to be faithful and he's responsible for the results. He's responsible for the results. This very difficult passage, which literally violates what we've been taught our whole lives, humbles, heals, and frees. So maybe you want to pray along with me as you begin to digest this. Number one, we just want to say in this church, thank you, God, that you're sovereign and you're trustworthy. Thank you that you've even chosen to call anyone back after our great rebellion. Thank you that you've even... Have mercy in you. Uh, I pray in this moment as people work this out, as I work this out, that actually though we realize we are not God and though we're dust and though we are limited, help us to know that we're loved and valued and called and chosen, but help, help us to see our, to use the old word, our creatureliness and to see he's the creator. Humble our church, Lord, in your sovereignty. Second of all, I pray that those who are religious or self-sufficient would begin to realize that's dust in their hands and that you would lead through this teaching, through this moment, people to come to faith in Jesus because they actually realize that all their effort just leads to nothing. And I just even pray over the next few weeks, people would just cry out to God, mercy, have mercy on me through Jesus. And lastly, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would give a new power and boldness And telling people about Jesus, inviting people to Alpha, helping us preaching, teaching, serving kids, uh, doing healing, caring for the poor, and doing it because we know sovereignly you're going to work out your plan and we just get to follow along. Would there be a new power and freedom across the church because now we've rooted our actions uh, in you and not in us. Just work this out in three directions, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about us please visit us at our website sanctuschurch.com there you'll be able to find ways to support the ministry and what god's vision is for this church last but not least if you like what you're hearing be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases may the lord bless you and keep you cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace